0: Hello, and welcome back to The Formal Review. Today, we'll be having a very special episode. Now sit back, maybe grab a drink, and let's talk about this movie. What's up, everyone? I have shed innocent blood. Welcome. Welcome. <clears throat> Excuse me, uh sorry about that. We all go a little mad sometimes. What's up everyone and welcome back to the formal review. This is season three, episode twenty-nine, and I thank you all for tuning in once again. So happy October, everyone. We have reached the first full month of fall. It makes me want to buy school supplies.
1: I would send you a bouquet of newly sharpened pencils if I knew your name and address.
0: So with October obviously comes Halloween. Can you dig it. <laughs> So with that, what I'm going to be doing over the course of this next month is be looking back at Halloween slash horror movies. Now, these movies were chosen by all my followers. You voted, and these are the films that you chose. And I thank you very much for casting your vote. I'm your
1: number one fan.
0: If you missed out, you're going to have to follow me on social media, especially on Twitter and the gram, to see which films I'm going to be talking about. So some of these films I have seen before. And some of I have it. I'm not gonna tell you which ones, so you'll have to wait and see. And the first film is American Psycho. But before we get into this episode, I do want to cover other few things just like every other episode. Very quickly, I will be giving an update to the, my movie collection, my most recent trailer reactions, Michael Jordan and the shoe culture, and the movie review. And in that review, I will be giving you my interpretation of the ending of the movie. So stay tuned. Wait here for a little while. See what happens. Now, before I get started on anything, I know I talk about this at the end, but the data shows that most people skip over that part. <laughs> so I do want to reiterate the importance of leaving reviews on your favorite podcast service because those reviews really help me grow and improve. A lot of you have talked to me offline, but I do really appreciate the reviews that already are out there. If everyone could just continue doing that or letting me know any way that you think that I should, could grow. and make this more entertaining, feel free, and I'll look at them and I'll grow as such. So anyway, I was able to get a copy of Avengers Infinity War on 4K absolutely free how Disney movie insiders now this is not an advertisement for them I have built up a bunch of points over the course of many many years and they finally started releasing rewards again and one of the first films that they released was this one so I really had to cop it it's fake 4k as I've mentioned before fake 4k's content that is upscaled from a 2k digital intermediate and I go into detail on this in the prior episode season 3 episode 27 so go check that out for more information however like I've said many times before if the movie is fake 4k the most important technical advantages of that is the increased dynamic range or the hdr so i was able to get two films on 4k that are true 4k again this means that it is consumer 4k which is a 3840 by 2160 resolution ratio which has a 1.79 to 1 aspect ratio thanks to a wonderful human being i was able to get forrest gump and the big lebowski as a gift on top of that i was able to upgrade both of these From DVD, which is really fantastic, and I cannot wait to watch them in their 4K format after November 10th. Why am I waiting till then? If you know, you know. As both of them are slightly older films, I want to give my quick thoughts on them. So, Forrest Gump, I think, is very adequate and satisfying enough romantic drama, even though it is amusing and exceptionally well made. I think it's hardly deserving of the accolades and endless praise that it gets and still gets to this day. It did win Best Picture over Pulp Fiction and the Shawshank Redemption, which I think is just a travesty. I think the plot is fairly generic, but it did have some very good direction by Robert Zemeckis, and it is one of Tom Hanks' best performances, though I'm pretty sure it wouldn't be made today. And that's all I had to say and the most exciting portion to me is the audio upgrade. The DVD had a 5.1 Dolby Digital which again this early 2000 technology is
1: functional
0: but old. I also go into why that's important to me in season 3 episode 26 but in short it's an old technology and we've come a very long way since then with Dolby Atmos and TTSX. This is the main reason why I'm upgrading to 4K as it's becoming a standard. It's not on all films yet. I think that it's one of the best portions of 4K. Not to say Anything bad about visuals but I'm just more of an audio person because it really does bring you back into the movie and especially now with the news breaking that a lot of theaters are gonna be closing until next year watching movies at home really has been just a fantastic experience for me now and having Dolby me is really fantastic and that's why I always suggest it's worth invest in a home theater system not saying you have to buy everything at once grow it over time anyway back to Forrest Gump with this film I am looking forward specifically to the Vietnam War sequences with the bullets flying an explosion scattering in every direction and hearing military helicopters and rain overhead and I may give my experience at a later date when I actually watch it after November 10th. The Big Lebowski was my first Coen Brothers movie that I ever saw so even if they definitely have done superior films after this I think this one for me holds a very special place. The film has this kind of subtle homage to classic detective noir and I think it's a pretty fantastic piece of work that is I think unique and also hilarious. The movie perhaps has one of my favorite Favorite John Goodman performances.
1: Am I the only one around here? Who gives a about the roll market zero.
0: I also can't remember a film where I have laughed harder at a funeral scene of one of the main characters. Good night, sweet prince. Oh sh! Dude, I'm sorry. God. When? Fuck
1: Walter. Dude, I'm sorry. (laughs) i travesty with you, man!
0: I love the face the dude makes when Donnie's ashes are blown on him, and I legit can't stop laughing whenever I see this scene. As I mentioned, this is an upgrade from a DVDs, which had the same audio format as Forrest Gump. Now, this film doesn't have Dolby Atmos, but it does have DTSX, which is basically the same thing. not going to go into the specifics of the differences. While this film isn't known for its action sequences, it has a pretty great soundtrack from this Bob Dylan, Nina Simone, and the Eagles, but, of course... I hate the... F- Eagles, man! Though not my priority. To my memory, the movie has some really unique coloring, which I am looking forward to watching, especially the scenes with Julianne Moore. The film was also shot by Roger Deakins, who is a legend now, and I'm really looking forward to seeing that movie. So for those listeners who don't really know, I do watch trailers and record my reactions to them. I used to do one every day, Monday through Friday, but this was too ambitious. Now I only do them for big releases, and as I can, or as I watch them for others. So the only one that I did this week was for The Iron Mask, which is set in the 18th century and follows a cardiographer on a scientific and supernatural journey that leads him from England to China. It was actually a 2019 Russian Chinese fantasy adventure film called V2 Journey to China. Why they actually changed the name? No idea. Honestly, watch this because I saw Jackie Chan and Arnold Schwarzenegger, but feel free to go back and check out my reaction. It's on the gram and Twitter and Facebook. In short though, it's pretty bad looking now i don't watch new tv shows very often because i feel it's hard to get attached to them especially if the episodes are long i don't like when certain storylines are left out or we still don't know everything and it kind of leaves me in this feeling of uncertainty so I binge everything which hurts me if it's a longer show obviously so that's why I usually don't watch them or it does take me a little bit longer to watch them such as with one of the tv shows I want to talk about which is The Last Dance now I know this came out months ago on ESPN plus I don't have ESPN plus came out on Netflix and it's been taking me a little bit of time to finish watching it now I really really wanted to watch it before but I just didn't have the time and then so now I took the time and I watched it and man I thought it was great. It really reminded me of some of my childhood some of those games I remember watching as a kid and it was just a lot of fun to revisit that see the old jerseys and revisit some of those really big epic series of the finals with Michael Jordan and I thought that was such a great series to be done and frankly it was one of the few documentary series that I would think about buying to have on a hard copy just so I can rewatch it whenever I want to. It did take me a little bit to watch because those episodes were about 40-50 minutes. Now the other show I want to talk about is called Sneakerheads which I got to start and finish this past week because it is six episodes long and each is about 20 minutes. Why did I start watching this out of everything on Netflix? So for those who don't know what that is a sneakerhead is one who collects and trades sneakers as a hobby. I'm not a full sneakerhead but I like sneakers. I'm not much of a trader but i more for the use of the sneakers and this all started in the 1980s and is attributed to two major sources. One is basketball and that's more specifically when Michael Jordan released his Air Jordan line of shoes in 1985 and the second is the growth of hip-hop music since the 1980s. Both have now led to those who have these certain sneakers to have some sort of status are similar to that of Gucci or Hugo Boss. The boom of signature basketball shoes during this era provided the sheer variety necessary for a collecting subculture while the hip-hop movement gave these sneakers their street credibility as status symbols I do anything for club. anyway so this show is a comedic depiction of how ridiculous the world of sneakers can get from release day desperation and the resale market to styling and customization it stars alan maldonado andrew bachelor ernest corchado and matthew jorston the story is fairly simple the main character loses money tries to buy sneakers and he desperately tries to get it back by doing a lot of things and honestly this show is pretty enjoyable it's not Great by any means and uh, that I would re-watch over and over again, but it was nice to watch while doing laundry and doing other chores. Now, I will say that this is a show not only for footwear aficionados. The main character, Devin, is someone who's kind of been removed from the shoe culture for a while. So, really, I mean anybody who's uninformed about it can kind of learn about the sneaker culture as he learns new things too. And I think the things that they go into the show is exaggerated to an extent, but that allows for the great comedy that it has i think shoe culture can be ridiculous at times with one pair can go over a thousand dollars and that's not even the most that some shoes can go for but either way the show is fairly enjoyable and i don't feel that i wasted my time watching it because it is very short definitely worth watching if you need something refreshing it's on netflix so now on to the movie at hand let's relax grab your drinks and let's discuss the movie American Psycho is a 2000 black comedy psychological horror film co-written and directed by Mary Heron based on the Brett Easton Ellis' 1991 novel of the same name. It stars Christian Bale, Willem Dafoe, Jared Leto, Josh Lucas, Chloe Sevigny, Samantha Mathis, Kara Seymour, Justin Theroux, Guinevere Turner, Reggie Cathy, and Reese Witherspoon. Now shout out to Rye from Life of Films who suggested that I watch this. I will say I have seen this movie before but it was definitely a good film to go back and rewatch that because I haven't seen it in a few years. And yes, there is some debate whether this is an actual true horror film, but it does have horror aspects, so it is a valid decision. And also, this was chosen to go on, so in the competition online, so that's why I watched it. So before I go any further with this review, I do want to say that the movie has a lot of adult topics, and I will be talking about some of those, and so if you are sensitive to that type of thing, please stop now because you're going to get upset later on. (laughs) I also may have some spoilers here and there, but this movie came out 20 years ago, geez. So you've had time to watch it. But if that type of thing bothers you, stop listening, go watch the film, and then come back and hear what I have to say about it. But if you don't care, keep listening. So going to the source material, like I said, it was published in 1991, and it is told in the first person, similar to the movie, by Patrick Bateman, who is a serial killer and Manhattan investment banker. Now, I haven't read the book, but literary critic Jeffrey W. Hunter stated that it is a largely critique of the shallow and vicious aspects of capitalism. This is because the characters are mostly concerned with material gain and superficial appearances, traits, etc. Bateman treats everyone and everything in this story as a commodity, such as the objectification and brutalization of women. The book also shows Bateman having episodes of schizophrenia, and how he copes with it is how he's trying to be an affluent person in a superficial and consumer based world. There is a lot of analysis of the novel that I'm not gonna go into, but the themes of the book are, in short, the consequences of how consumerism affects society and the way affluent people view the world, whether they're higher, lower, or at the same wealth or social status. I say all this, so when I say that the film has had very similar, if not the exact same qualities. You know what I mean. So, in 1992, the film rights were purchased with Johnny Depp expressing an interest in the lead role. David Cronenberg became attached and brought on Ellis to adapt the novel into a screenplay. That fell through and then Mary Heron was brought on to write the film. She cast Christian Bale, Willem Dafoe, and Jared Leto. However, the studio argued that Bale wasn't famous enough and they'd rather have Edward Norton or Leonardo DiCaprio as Bateman. Heron actually refused to meet with DiCaprio because she specifically chose Bale and believed that DiCaprio would be too boyish thanks to his teen idol reputation from Romeo and Juliet. There was so much drama going on with this that even DiCaprio drafted a list of replacement directors which included Oliver Stone, Danny Boyle, and Martin Scorsese. Stone eventually was actually brought on a board whom Heron called quote, probably the single worst person to do it, end quote. He apparently wanted to get rid of the satire, putting more emphasis on the psychological character traits of Bateman. Which would have been interesting, I can't lie, but this obviously ended up falling through because Stone couldn't agree on the film's directions with DiCaprio, so this was kind of lost. Lionsgate then offered the role to Ewan McGregor, but he refused because Bale convinced him not to take the role. So fast forward to the year 2000, when writer, Guinevere Turner, and writer-director, Marin Heron released their adaptation of the novel. The Motion Picture Association of America gave the film actually an NC-17 rating for a scene featuring Bateman having a threesome with two prostitutes. The producers had to get rid of about 18 seconds of footage so that they could obtain the R rating for the movie. As with the book, audiences and critics either hated it or loved it, and this film currently holds a 67% on Rotten Tomatoes, with the consensus saying it falls short of a deadly satire of Brett Easton Ellison's novel, American Psycho, still finds its own blend of horror and humor, thanks to, in part, a fittingly creepy performance by Christian Bale. So, this 69% is based on a total count of 150 critics, but it also has an 85% audience score based on a little over 304. 1000 user ratings. So with Rotten Tomatoes, that means basically 69% of critics recommend to see this movie and 85% of audience members recommend to see this movie. I don't always like that rating because it's a little confusing and it's not a rating of the movie itself. It's just a certain percentage of people recommending to see the movie. So it could have 100% on Rotten Tomatoes if four people review it and all four of them say go see the movie. But they could rate the film a 3 out of I personally like Metacritic or IMDB ratings so on that the Metascore is 64 based on 35 critic reviews but then the user score is 8.7 based on a little under a thousand reviews so I think that's a little bit more accurate to this movie's quality. So as I mentioned earlier there is a debate about this movie whether it's a horror or if it's a thriller and I think it depends on your definition of the words. I think horror is defined as an intense feeling of fear shock or disgust. So from that angle, it is a horror film. There's also the very obvious horror aspect of a serial killer. Before I go into why, I do want to just preface this. This is just my analysis of it. I don't know what the director and writer actually were thinking about it, unless I quote them specifically. But for me, this is just how I was viewing it. Because watching it in 2020 was very interesting, to say the least. The last time I saw this movie was, I don't know, but it was before the Me Too movement. And I think watching it post that really made this film even more horrifying. And that's because a lot of the sexual assault cases were things that were going on in the 1980s and also the early 90s, which is again when this movie was taking place. Obviously, there were a lot of women back then who didn't feel comfortable talking about their issues or they felt that they had to be silent or whatever their reason was for not speaking out until now. So outside of Ellis's own comments on the movement, I think the film speaks to what happened a lot in the past. Again, it. It takes place in the 1980s where greed and the rapaciousness of wall street and the emptiness of consumer culture pretty much run rampant bateman says early in the movie there is an idea
1: of a patrick
0: bateman some kind
1: of abstraction but there is no real me only an entity something illusory and though i can hide my cold gaze and you can shake my hand and feel flesh gripping yours and maybe you can even sense our lifestyles are probably
0: comparable I simply am not there. Bateman is trying to fit into a world that he doesn't belong. There's one woman in the film that seems to be from his past.
1: Hi, Patrick, I thought that was you.
0: Hello. And to me, that emphasizes that Bateman wasn't the same in his past. He then speaks in one scene when they're at dinner to wanting good things.
1: We have to end apartheid for one and slow down the nuclear arms race, stop terrorism and world hunger. We have to provide food and shelter for the homeless and oppose racial discrimination and promote civil rights while also promoting equal rights for women. We have to encourage a return to traditional moral values. Most importantly we have to promote general social concern less materialism in young people.
0: People then kind of laugh at him and he doesn't really say anything like that again. And I think that this is him realizing that this is something that successful people don't really do so he stops he then pushes himself to be the alfiest alpha male possible he's able to essentially say anything he wants able to pay for anything he's able to be an ass to women tell them to do anything call them by any name etc it almost seems that Heron was trying to take the 1980s and put every horrific aspect of that era into one person, which would obviously make the psychopath that we see on screen. He was able to get away with everything, including killing people because people always mistook him for someone else. And again, I don't know if they were really trying to do it, but I think that looking at it from that angle is really horrific to me. And I don't know, again, if this was done purposefully, but the reason why I think that it could have been done this way is because there was one specific line in the movie where Bateman says, I have a lunch meeting with Cliff Huxtable at Four Seasons in 20 minutes. While one may say that he was just using that name drop to deter the inspector, I don't think it's just that. The 1980s was the time where this fictional character was so huge. So why does it the inspector not realize that this was a fake lunch? He potentially realizes that the place isn't right. The Four Seasons,
1: isn't that a little far uptown? No, there's one down here.
0: Oh, really? I didn't yes. know that. It's very good. He also knows who Huey Lewis in the news are. So it's kind of weird to me that was a, such a specific name drop. He could have used any real person out there they named up Donald Trump a few times so why use a fictional character why not come up with a real person that's just so elite that he has to go and the inspector doesn't know who that is again I don't know if that's in the source material but to me looking at this from the film perspective this was kind of eerie especially given to what happened Bill Cosby in the past few years oh I will say that the (laughs) inspector doesn't seem the brightest I don't really understand why the inspector asked all these questions where Bateman was and then he told him at the end of it that he has an alibi it just seems to make a really big deal about it about nothing why did he have to tell him that at lunch he was just trying to make him sweat for funsies I don't know like it adds tension to the story but it's really bad police work it doesn't really need to be done if he had an alibi for him he could have just said okay no you're good you were there and then that's it anyway my point is is that giving this film a look from the post me too movement does give the film more horror aspects that I didn't really see before. Now I'm not trying to say that this is the ultra-feminist movie out there, but I do say this is a way that I saw this movie in a different way than I saw before. As Bateman, I think Bale provides an amazing performance and it's definitely one of his best. From the beginning, Bateman is one that you know you're gonna hate. Even though he potentially was a kind of a hippie maybe beforehand, you can't really pity him because he essentially has no soul. He gets his opinions on music and restaurants from reviews and quotes them to show his quote-unquote intelligence. You're gonna have the peanut butter soup with smoked duck
1: and mashed squash. New York Matinee called it a playful but mysterious little dish. You'll love it.
0: His ultimate goal is to fake everyone out into thinking that he is this prototypical capitalist douchebag. Because I want to fit in. But, as he thinks he's the best, people outplay him, and he becomes pissed. The new card. Picked them up
1: from the printers yesterday. That's Bone. And the lettering is something called Cillian Braille. It's very cool, Bateman. But that's nothing. What is this? Eggshell with Romalian type. Nice. That is really super. How did a nitwit like you get so tasteful? <laughs> I can't believe that Bryce prefers Van Patten's card to mine. Let's see Paul Allen's card. Look at that subtle off-white coloring, A tasteful thickness of it, oh my god, it even has a watermark.
0: Then again, later on, somebody else ups him again and then he goes into the bathroom to strangle him. The guy then mistakes it for a sexual encounter and he comes out to him, but that's the character of this story he is absolutely psychotic but no one else sees it because legitimately no one is listening to him one thing i found absolutely interesting was how regimented he is and how honestly applicable this is to today's world i mean how many youtube videos are out there that show how you should take care of yourselves i believe
1: in taking care of myself
0: in a balanced diet
1: and a rigorous exercise routine i use a deep pore cleanser lotion In the shower, I use a water-activated gel cleanser, then a honey almond body scrub, and on the face, an exfoliating gel scrub. I always use an aftershave lotion with little or no alcohol because alcohol dries your face out and makes you look older. Then moisturizer, then an anti-aging eye balm
0: followed by a final moisturizing protective lotion. The names may be different now, but this type of thing is being pushed toward men a lot currently. I'm not saying all the people that do these things are going to end up as serial killers, but. Not gonna lie kind of eerie anyway so i think the flaws of this film lie in its ambiguity and did he kill everyone and how much of the story actually transpired and how much of it was in bateman's imagination so this part is definitely spoiler territory my concluding thought is yeah go watch it if you haven't seen it but honestly it's a 20 year old movie you have had time to see it but definitely keep listening if you want to hear my interpretation of the movie so i think bateman did kill everyone in that movie, including Paul Allen. So, I do want to give a little bit of a preface of why I say this. Okay, so if we rewind in the movie, prior to the ending, Bateman is trying to feed a cat to an ATM because it tells him so. He then picks up the stray to shoot it and then shove it into the machine. However, a freaked out woman yells at him and he shoots her. He's then involved in a shootout with the police and then is able to win and even blow up one of the squad cars. To any normal person, this is odd and it is even puzzling to Bateman. He then goes into this office building that's not his office, kills a security guard on duty because he calls him Mr. Smith to probably not allow witnesses, and he kills the janitor on his way out and makes his way to his office, which is literally an identical building. He then calls his lawyer to confess everything and to meet with him tomorrow. The next day, the body parts that we have seen earlier in the movie have disappeared from what we have understood as Paul Allen's apartment. A realtor even tells Bateman that no one by that name had lived there. Bateman's secretary Gene, played by Savini, finds Bateman's notebook that have drawings similar to one that we saw Bateman drawing earlier on a restaurant table with his fiance. he then meets with his lawyer who confuses Bateman for someone else and thinks that the message Bateman gave was a joke he believes that Bateman who he thinks is someone else is a dork who couldn't be a serial killer bails Bateman then says the message was authentic but his lawyer refutes this as he apparently saw Paul Allen a few days ago in London but here's why I think Bateman killed Allen the detective says Stephen Hughes said he saw him at a restaurant there but i checked it out and what happened is he mistook
1: a herbert ainsworth for paul's
0: bateman's lawyer has already had issues remembering who his clients are like bateman so why should we believe that he saw the real allen one thing i also noticed at the beginning of the movie when they referenced paul allen it didn't really look like jared leto it looked like a completely different person. So Bateman's friends even mistake who Paul and Allen is. Now, I'm not sure if this was some filming error or whatever, but I don't know. It, it was odd. So honestly, I think it could be argued that his friends barely know who he is. They kind of see him and oh, he looks kind of similar to that other person, so that must be him too. But it's not really him. But Bateman is one that who would recognize every little detail so he would never mistake who he is. It's pretty established throughout the entire movie that Bateman is obsessed with and hates Alan. In the third act of the movie Bateman's psychotic mind maybe decreasing as an ATM actually wouldn't say feed me a stray cat so really can't trust anyone including him. However this is a horror film so I think the killings are valid. I will admit that there is some ambiguity in the other killings however I think a lot of them are in the population of people that someone in his circle would rarely give two glances at such as prostitutes and homeless men, aside from using them physically or as a scapegoat. And I think there's a point to be made that it's all fake and Bateman is just really confused as he also gets a lot of his thoughts from outside sources. His thoughts on restaurants and reviews, his thoughts on what an alpha man is and is supposed to look like, is pretty much told to him from the outside world. He doesn't really have much of an identity. So he is trying to be this certain way of a successful man in the 1980s. His sex life must look like the pornos he watches so he creates these videotapes. He then could imagine killing people like the horror films that he has watched in the movies, but I think the key is the final line of dialogue. There are no more barriers to cross. All I have in common with
1: the uncontrollable and the insane, the vicious and the evil, all the mayhem I have caused and my utter indifference toward it, I have now surpassed. My pain is constant and sharp, and I do not hope for a better world for anyone. In fact, I want my pain to be inflicted on others. I want no one to escape. But even after admitting this, there is no catharsis. My punishment continues to elude me, and I gain no deeper knowledge of myself. No new knowledge can be extracted from my
0: telling. This confession has meant nothing. I think the entire movie is essentially this character's confession, but no one listens. They don't listen because they're too wrapped up in their own lives to care. They care too much about the same superficial things that Bateman cares about to give any serious ear to him. The writers of this movie have actually gone on record that they feel that the finale is actually too ambiguous and they want to make it very clear that Bateman is most definitely a serial killer. I
1: think it's a fe- the final scene that I I just got the emphasis wrong because I should have left it just more open-ended. It makes it look like it, might all, it was all in his head and it's, as far as I'm concerned it's not.
0: And I think the confusion comes in the scene obviously with that I was describing when he shoots the car and explodes and that's because his perception of reality can't be right and he kind of goes more and more crazy and you think, see things are starting to become a little bit more distorted and I think that that's where the ambiguity of this movie kind of has issues because I think that it's meant to show that he's actually been killing these people I think that he's just maybe not as alpha as he thinks he is the women that he's hooking up with aren't attractive as he thinks they are etc so for me when the director and writer say that he's definitely murdered that's confirmation to me that he was and as she says that they didn't get this across as concrete as it wants to I think that's the biggest flaw of the movie Ellis said and I quote American Psycho was a book I didn't think needed to Be turned into a movie as the medium of film demands answers which would make the book indefinitely less interesting end quote so the book had the ambiguity but the movie it didn't work so well aside from that i do think the film can be a little dated sometimes when bateman says gotta return some video games." because no one does that anymore. However, it is still very comedic to remember a time when we used to do that. I think it also makes sense given that we see Bateman watching multi-videos in the movie, either pornography or other serial killer movies. Anyway, in conclusion, I still think that the movie is brilliant. It's still pretty horrific, even if you don't agree with my me me too point of view, to think that a person could get away with such things because we as a society are so wrapped up in our own lives to care. I mean, how many times are there serial killers And then when they interview their friends and family, they say, Oh, they were always so nice. I would never think of them to do such a thing. Well, maybe they were, just you didn't notice. I'm not talking about any particular case, only the idea of it. I think it's fascinating to think about. But what do you think of the movie? And do you think Patrick Bateman killed everyone, including Paul Allen, or everyone except Paul Allen? And did you enjoy the Halloween episode? I will be doing some more this coming month, so look out for those episodes coming soon. Let me know. Hit me up on social media. If you want to join me talking about these movies, feel free to reach out on social media. The Formal Review is on Facebook, Twitter, and the Gram. The handle is all the same. It's at The Formal Review. Feel free to also check out BackseatDirectors.com, where I work with a big team to put out movie reviews and also editorials. Again, that's Backseat directors.com please also subscribe to the former review we're on google Podcasts, apple Podcasts, spotify we're now on amazon music iHeartRadio. radio honestly pretty much anywhere you can find a podcast we have our content there also i'm always wanting to grow and improve so please leave a review and what you want to hear because i really do this for you all i see the numbers and i really appreciate everyone supporting me and talking to me about movies because frankly that's what it's all about and for anyone who has supported me on a financial basis thank you again and if you want to help support on a financial basis please go to anchor.fm forward slash the minus sign formal minus sign review and click support this podcast and honestly any donation is appreciated thank you all again for tuning in and until next time wear your mask wash your hands stay safe and take care everyone thanks for tuning in to another episode of the formal review cheers